Would you like to live a happier, healthier, and more fulfilled life? Cultures from all over our planet have been addressing that concern for thousands of years, and their answers can help you in your life today. Welcome to The Sweet Spot, where healing, spirituality, and culture meet. Join anthropologist and healer Robert Better as he introduces you to healing and spirituality in world cultures. Here's the host of your show, Robert Better. Hi, folks. It's Bob Vetter here. Before the podcast starts, I wanted to offer you something for free available on my website, www.bobvetter.com. It's a download of a game and map of the healer's journey called Sustos, named after the traumatic events that can lead to soul loss. The game provides insights in how we ourselves can be healed and how that process empowers us in our healing efforts with others. Get your free download at www.bobvetter.com. Now, let's get to our latest podcast episode. Welcome, listeners. I'm here today with Adrian DiMatteo. Adrian DiMatteo is a graduate of the Eastman School of Music and a student of Maestro Manuel Rufino. For over 20 years, he has studied and traveled the world, exploring sound, language, musical culture, and how they affect individual and collective well-being. With a holistic approach to science and consciousness, he offers a closer look at how sound itself can impact life. Adrian DiMatteo, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Well, you have a, an interesting background that I'd like to start with and find out a little bit more about your, your journey. So if you can take us through, um, maybe we could unpack that, that very dense explanation and summary of your life in, in sound and healing. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been a great journey. I was born in Rochester, New York, upstate, and I grew up in the inner city and I went to a public school where I studied at the School of the Arts from sixth grade through senior year of high school. So I was always surrounded by arts. And in the Rochester district is the Eastman School of Music, which is connected to the University of Rochester. And that's considered to be, by many, one of the best music schools in the world, especially for jazz and classical music. So around the age of 11 or 12, I started playing guitar. And I studied with the same guitar professor, Bob Snyder, for basically nine years straight. And I still consider him my teacher. And for life, he will be. But I received a very deep education in music theory and performance, especially related to jazz and classical music, uh, which was a very comprehensive education from the sort of Western European model of education. I grew up with music in my household all the time because my dad was playing piano, he's self-taught. My brother went to another school for drums and violin, and they used to play music on the weekends. And at a very young age, I have memories of sort of the whole house being full of music, and it was really inspiring. And I think that that definitely helped open me up to music from childhood. And it was playing in the house, on the speakers, different cultures, and I just was exposed to a lot of sound that way. And then after I got my degree, in jazz guitar performance. I graduated in 2013 and I was offered a job in 
France, where I was a private events entertainer. I played upright bass and sang in a four-person group that did international private events. And we played all over the world. I went to about 20 countries in one year. And we were doing popular songs and foreign language classics. Everything from Stevie Wonder to Rihanna to Pharrell to Bruno Mars to The Beatles. And um, popular songs in foreign languages. So by that point, I was singing in about 10 or 12 languages. And... I came back eventually from that work. I transitioned through Qatar in the Middle East, where I played at the St. Regis Hotel as a private entertainer for three months contract. And I was working with jazz at Lincoln Center in Doha. And finally decided I wanted to move towards original music. I didn't want to do any more of the private parties and playing pop songs for, for everyone. I wanted to shift from being an entertainer to being an artist, which is a subtle difference, but a significant one from the perspective of a creative person. So I moved to Boston to start a progressive rock band with some friends of mine. And I lived there for about a year and a half, uh, establishing that group, writing music, preparing to record. And then during that period, my whole life changed when I started to encounter some indigenous groups through a friend that I had met in my travels, and they introduced me and there I started to hear music from traditional cultures that I had never encountered before and being used in a way that I had never encountered before. So my whole perception of what I was doing with music, the purpose of art, and the healing capacity of sound was really informed by those experiences. And I've spent the past six years or so diving very deeply into all of the different healing traditions of music around the world including Tibetan meditation, Hindu mantra, indigenous chanting and songs, uh, African music from various tribal groups, ancient European music, Slavic music, and the list goes on. But starting to realize the connective tissue of music and dance throughout world cultures and how traditionally this whole concept of the entertainer, the celebrity, was not part of music making. And really music making was a community practiced and often a ceremonial practice well that is a lot <laughs> that's yeah. there's a lot there so let's uh let's go back since the the topic of this podcast as you know is um healing and spirituality i would love to hear more about the that transition that you made uh and going into indigenous communities that's that's the part that that I think is most relevant to this show and certainly to our listeners. So can you tell us a little bit more about that part of the journey? Sure. Um, I think that the cultural flavors of music are very dynamic and diverse in our world. And we often just grow up with or are exposed to something limited according to the radio or what is popular in movies and in our society. I already had a unique experience because I would grow up in the inner city where I was a minority as a white person and I often played in black churches in the Baptist church and I was exposed to blues and gospel music which already is sacred music and traditional music that's going back hundreds of years spirituals and things coming out of slavery in the African diaspora and then all the influence that that had on our on our culture 
So I already felt very deeply connected in some sense to a culture that is, quote unquote, not my culture, not my own, even though growing up with it and being around it, it felt very natural to me. And as a young person, you know, the age of 11, I didn't have in my mind concepts of racism or concepts of appropriation. I just loved the music and I connected with it. And that set the table, I think, for what would come later, which was just music that's really deep in emotion and really deep in prayer, because I learned to heal myself by learning music and playing it, by expressing myself creatively and developing confidence as a person that I had skill as an artist or I had skill and knowledge, you know, then I grew up more and more with that. And eventually when, like I say, I, I came into contact with these indigenous groups, well, the first was actually, one of the first was the Tibetan tradition. I was living in Salem, Massachusetts, and there was a store called the Tibet Arts and Healing Center, which has a lot of beautiful instruments and artifacts from the Himalayas. And I got my first Himalayan singing bowls and a gong and some tinksha cymbals. And I began to learn some mantras, simple mantras, and the context in which those are used, the deities that they're associated with, the bodhisattvas, and the teachings behind them, the meaning of the words and the pronunciations. And I did some workshops with some Tibetan people there. We eventually led some workshops together. And that was one of my first exposures. I was already practicing some meditation and learning about Buddhism. So it was a practical sort of entryway for me. Um, and then I don't know if you have any, any comments or questions about that before I share maybe another tradition exposure that I had, but that was my first main exposure. Yeah, so just to, to touch on that a little bit, you, what I'm gathering is that you already had a sense of music as healing and that then in going into these indigenous systems, beginning here with Tibetan Buddhism, now it's much more explicit. Is that right? Do I have that right? Yeah, I'd say it was a notion that I had in my heart, but it wasn't something that I had a context to place it in. The way that my music education was so rigid and structured, you know, here's theory, here's the history, here's, there's a whole academic procedure around it. I didn't realize that other cultures had their own elaborate academic procedures, or let's say initiatic procedures, because a lot of these traditions are traditions of initiation. And we have to, you know, kind of understand what that really means. But from the perspective of you need to go through a deep and comprehensive process in order to become thoroughly trained in something. Not that they issue certifications the way that our culture does. Here's your degree. It takes four years to get it. It's more of a, of a fluid process, but it involves a deep teacher-student relationship. And it involves a series of practices and disciplines that require many thousands of hours of dedication and really your entire life's dedication just to become a master within one tradition, let alone what I'm doing, which is, you know, trying to interface with many cultures at once. So we, we could say then you, you had an initiation in the very Western sense of it. In other words, you go to college, you take the courses, you study under somebody who knows better than you do, who becomes your, your main teacher, you get your degree, you go out into the world. And as you, as you mentioned earlier, you started as an entertainer. So that was a certain type of initiation 
by the time you get here to this Tibetan Buddhist group, there is a different sense of initiation. Yes, definitely. A different purpose behind the music and the sound and a different philosophy, really. Because I was very into philosophy. I studied Greek philosophy and French philosophy and, you know, the pantheon of philosophers that have had a major impact on what we're calling Western society. Although I don't like the term because it completely ignores all of the indigenous people of the Americas as well as tribal people living in Africa that are in the Western Hemisphere. So Western is really a, a poor choice in terms. I prefer, you know, European colonial history, maybe. Um, but yes, it was it was just a different philosophical system that resonated a lot more with me. It was starting to shine a light on some sort of dark channels that I had found myself lost in trying to understand life and consciousness and who am I and what am I and is there God and what is God and all of these all of these things that were not satisfactorily answered by the schools of thought I had been exposed to. Then the Buddhist teachings, for instance, bringing a lot of beautiful structure and illumination to the nature of consciousness and some other ways of seeing reality that don't necessarily require answers to the question, is there God, do I have a soul? in order to find peace, in order to become a kind, loving person, which I wanted to become more kind and loving. Yeah, so in, so in Buddhism, we, we, circ, we circumvent some of the notions of philosophy. In other words, it's, what's not important is necessarily the nature of the universe. What is important is lessening human suffering. And I... I'm guessing that that's kind of where we're going with this, that through this, through the sound, through the music, that there is this, this element of healing built into it in a more formal yes. way. Definitely. I mean, one of the main ways that chanting is used in Buddhist culture is to recite teachings. So thousands and hundreds of thousands of verses were committed by memory and transmitted from teacher to student through an oral tradition. And that was before writing any of it down. So hundreds of thousands of verses committed to memory with the aid of melody and rhythm, because music probably predates language. And the use of it to aid in memorization is a huge part of, for instance, the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. They have chanting where they're calling all of the scriptures and that is teaching also the philosophy, you could say, through the chanting. So there's an ideology there, or at least a series of teachings, let's say, that are passed with music and rhythm and melody and so on, which is already a different conception than we get from, let's say, jazz history or classical music history, except for maybe in the case of like the mass or Christian and Catholic music, which is designed also to share the teachings of Christianity and to impress that upon people. Um, so that's that's a similar use of music as an aid for spiritual learning. Did you find anything in Tibetan Buddhism um, of a person being passive, let's say as a patient, while the person performing the sound or the music is the one uh, taking them through it? 
That definitely happens. Uh, I have subsequently, in recent years, gone a lot further into some of that study of the Tibetan tradition, which is Sola Rigpa, the Tibetan medicine or traditional medicine. And one of the practices that I did was I recited 150,000 times uh, two different mantras in total, 150,000 times. And there was a diet associated with that practice. And there was also a um, timeline associated. It had to be completed within two weeks. And certain other requirements. It was a, a body-mind-spirit process. It wasn't just, here's the mantra, chant it. But there was, like I say, a diet and and other mental austerities and things associated. But in order to even be able to do the practice, I first had to receive a transmission from a teacher in the lineage. So the teacher does the introduction and provides the transmission of the mantra that then I will go and recite. But without the transmission from the teacher, then it's not really considered possible to do the practice. So there are many examples of that. Um, that teachers give transmissions, and in that sense, the student has to receive it. We could say the patient has to receive it. Someone can be chanted for, so a person passes away, their entire family may chant on their behalf for the transition of their soul for months. And there are other examples of chanting being used for the benefit of others who are unable to chant for themselves or who may completely lack exposure to the teachings. So then to practice the Dharma is in some cases to chant on behalf of others. I don't want to get too caught up in the Buddhist specifically because I have various exposures, but this is providing a metaphor that shows in all of the different traditions then different functions of sound and music, whether active or passive, whether for healing, for prayer, for study, for meditation. So it can have different functions. So beautiful. So Tibetan Buddhism provides you an entry point for using uh, music in healing in a different way than what you had started out with in, in music. Where did you go from there? Well, simultaneously, it just so happened that when I was exposed to the indigenous traditions, um, I had a really unexpected, um, let's say, revitalization of my connection to my Jewish ancestry, because through my mother's side, then my family has Jewish history. And I became very curious about it. And so I started to study Judaism, which I hadn't really been brought up with. But I wanted to connect with my roots more because one of the main things that's happening, I notice with indigenous work today, is a sense of appropriation. And, and a lot of the culture bearers of the traditions are saying, go to your roots, go to your family's roots and find them because we have our roots. And it is of great value to our world, but we want you to also rediscover your roots. And so I had the Catholicism on my father's side and the Judaism on my mother's side. You know, interestingly, Judaism is, is really considered to be a tribe. It's a Jewish tribe. And many consider it to be passed only through the blood, through the mother. And therefore, it's a blood lineage as well. It depends on which, you know, denomination of, of Judaism that you're part of, your exact views on those subjects. But regardless, I felt very connected and I decided to, to take a trip to Israel. They offer what's called the birthright trip for people to visit there and connect with their ancestry. And it was a very powerful experience for me. And I started to learn songs and I started to learn some of the prayers and like 
more meaning behind what the holidays represent and how the calendar works and more of the nuances. And so that is also a very ancient lineage, right? Their calendar is almost 6,000 years old. So that was another parallel tradition I was becoming exposed to. And I started to communicate with a rabbi and he's remained a friend and teacher to me. And those songs touched me deeper than I thought they would. And they've become a part of my repertoire. Beautiful. So parallel to your, your time with Tibetan Buddhism, you're exploring Judaism and then which, indigenous culture do you find yourself in next yeah so the the native american people of these continents because all of the continents of north central and south america were known as americua which means the land of the winds and a lot of people think that the name came from amerigo vespucci uh, you know a conquistador or let's say an explorer who was traveling around but my understanding is that the name came from the Mayan word Americua, which means, again, the land of the winds. And throughout these nations, there were 500 or more nations of indigenous people. And they were sometimes assimilated under broader umbrellas, such as the Mayans or the Aztecs or the Incans. And then in the northern continent, uh, I was exposed to some traditions that were finding me through the Lakota people under the Sioux Nation category. Again, there's there's always the the traditional names that they give themselves are different than the names that we give them. And it's good to learn their traditional names as much as possible. But some of the people I was exposed to were not indigenous themselves, but they were had already been exposed to those people and therefore they were bringing some pieces of those traditions to my awareness through their lens. And then eventually, after working with these people, I was exposed directly to teachers of the traditions, such as Tata Pedro Cruz of the Mayan people, the Sutuhil Mayans of Guatemala, and his daughter Nana Marina Cruz, such as my current teacher, Maestro Manuel Rufino, such as some others, elders who have come from other places, I don't have the capacity to name them all right now because it would take a while, but if you research the Golden Drum, goldendrum.org, you can see some of the festivals we've put together and the types of people that have been coming, and those are the people that I've, I've whether had direct contact with or have been receiving information through our festival that they participate in consensually. Um, uh, chief Arvel Looking Horse is another one that comes to mind, who is the chief of the the Sioux Nation involving the Nakota, Dakota, and Lakota people. And currently, well, I, like I say, I can't go into everything, but these exposures each come with a sliver of the tradition. I was with a teacher the other day, and he said to remind us all that the things we're receiving are like a grain of rice. The tradition is a whole field full of all kinds of flowers and plants, and we receive a grain of rice. So I'm, I remain very humble and cautious about what I say, because it's not 
possible to describe it to you in 30 minutes. So clearly something happened, something shifted in you in terms of your understanding of music and sound and healing and what all of these things mean and how they work. So we've kind of done the overview now, and I'm just uh, curious about how all of this came to change you. And then we'll talk about you as a teacher also. Yeah, well, I realized a lot about intentional experiences. That was something that came to my awareness, that any type of ceremonial music, whether it's a, a bar mitzvah ceremony, for instance, or a ceremony commemorating the passing of a loved one, or a wedding ceremony, because I had played many weddings. And in those weddings, I often played either the dance party, or I played the moment when they're walking down the aisle and they do their vows. And it's very obvious that that moment is highly charged emotionally, and it's a very beautiful moment. There's a sacredness there in most people's consciousness that isn't necessarily there on the dance floor by the time everybody's drinking and partying. It's also a very important part of the process because the families are mingling and getting to know each other and all of that. But I noticed through the intention and the concentration, say, you know, this is the space we're creating here for us to express the depths of our love and our intentions to be dedicated to each other for the rest of our lives. And I wanted to be part of those moments. Those were the moments where I felt like the music I was offering was really meaningful, crystallizing a person's consecration of their love for the rest of their lives or however long they may be together. And then in other ceremonial contexts, because there are cer there's ceremonial music for everything you could imagine. A birth, a death, a healing, the beginning of the day, the middle of the day, the end of the day, <clears throat> and so on. Welcoming a child into the world, yeah. So the intention creates a container or a space in which something can take place. So that was something that brought a lot online for me when I started to learn about basic principles of spirituality that are shared by many cultures, such as the four directions, the cardinal directions, north, south, east, and west, and just to become aware of where I'm standing and where the sun is rising and where is the moon right now, and the fact that I do have a relationship with the position of the moon to the earth, and I have a relationship to the position of the sun to the earth, and all of the planets are part of the ecosystem that I'm involved in, and the seasons affect me, the planetary seasons affect me. The lunar cycles affect us. They show that there's generally more violent crime committed during the full moon than any other period of the lunar cycle. Consistently, more children are born under the full moon time than other cycles of the moon. So just because I wasn't aware of it doesn't mean it wasn't affecting me. So now I started to become aware of it, that it's possible to create a container or a space for healing with music as part of that to occur. The same way that a psychologist creates a container for sound healing to talk to you, for you to exchange words, to listen to each other. It's a safe space. It's a space that's understood to be confidential. The office is likely clean and welcoming. There are certain hygienic considerations that are involved in that sound healing of a psychologist. And so using music and words with melodies is, can be very similar to the work of a psychologist. And in my time, I've found that to be the case. 
people want to talk about their deep spiritual needs. Can you give us an example of what that might be like? Your work, I'm, I'm asking about. Oh, what uh, yes. Yes. Well, my private sessions typically last about an hour and a half or two hours. And a person will come and I will or I will come to them depending on the circumstances. And a space will be created. Here's where the healing is going to happen. I will usually use the four elements, a fire in the form of a candle, water, whether a cup of water or something of that nature. I will use herbs to symbolize the air and the incense, such as sage or other herbs that are beneficial for the respiratory system and energetic clearing processes. And then a crystal or a stone to represent the north, the mineral energy. So then with the presence of these four elements in the use of an altar as a central point of focus between us, then we open the space with our intentions to begin communicating and to discuss what is it that you're going through, what is it that you your intentions are, why are we doing this, so that we're both clear. And then after some discussion and orientation, then I guide the person through a relaxation process to help them to come in to themselves, into their consciousness, into their body, into their feelings, and to unify all of that, to become a little less caught up in the external problems of day-to-day -day life, the racing mind, you know, oh, I have to get this done, or I had this conflict with that person, or I need to do this tomorrow, just to move from so much preoccupation with the past and the future in order to come more into the present moment and from the present moment to become aware of our mind, body, spirit, our emotions. How are we doing in the present moment? And then what comes up for the person in that experience is a part of the process of letting go of things, of being okay with things, of learning to just calm it down. And I would say pretty much every time the person becomes very relaxed and very peaceful in comparison to how they felt before the session. And so the session itself is to help the person remember how it feels to be relaxed and peaceful. And then to integrate that moving forward as they come out of the experience, then I guide them back out and integrate again into so-called normal life, but without just leaving that experience behind, but learning to take with them the accessibility to peace and love and compassion and gratitude and a sense of the sacred and whatever else it is that may awaken for them through the experience. It comes from inside of them, but I help to facilitate a space in which they can remember more easily these vibrations that are inherent to their being. Beautiful. And maybe this is a good time to ask you if you could share a healing song of any kind. Yes, um, I think a flute at this moment might be a good instrument to use. Just a moment. Sure.
Adrian is unpacking a flute from his bag of instruments. And since our listeners are only going to be hearing this, can you tell us before you start what kind of a flute that you have there? Yes, this flute is called the Flute of Prayer, or the Flauta de Oración, which comes from Peru, from the studio of Tito La Rosa and his son, La Rosa Bamboo. And it is a bamboo instrument, handmade. And the intention of the flute is right there in the name. It's the Flute of Prayer. So whatever that means to you, then the intention here is to provide a moment for you to connect, perhaps close your eyes, find good posture, take a few breaths calmly in and out through the nose and feel into your heart space and to send your intentions and your prayers, whether for your own life, for someone you care about, for someone that you may be experiencing conflict with, for plants, for animals, for the world itself, anything at all that you feel connected to in your heart and mind, then you unify, center, and relax yourself into the sound as a space being held for you to pray. Beautiful, beautiful and peaceful. Thank you. Thank you so much for that wonderful musical interlude. So Adrian, can you uh, tell us a little bit more about your work and uh, how people could contact you uh, if they want to pursue this in greater detail? Yeah, so most of the information needed can be found through my website adriandimatteo.com with all the links to my social media platforms and you can find my albums. I have two albums of original music and I'm working on a third. One of the albums is called While You Are Awake and that is a sound healing or meditation album. It's instrumental, there's no voice and it's intended to go with you 
into states of relaxation and massage therapy and yoga and all kinds of healing practices. So whether you facilitate those for others or you're receiving them yourself, that music may be a great accompaniment to those practices. And then you can be you can contact me through social media, whether Facebook, Instagram, or my website, if you have any direct questions or just want to see more of what I'm up to. And then on YouTube, I have plenty of content, a video in which I'm explaining more about what sound healing and meditation means to me. And there's a full video also talking about the science behind how sound affects plants. Plant growth and development is stimulated by sound and also the sounds that plants themselves make. And there's just so much music and, and information that I'm sharing, but I also just want to mention that I have written a book which is going to be published this year. It's called Elements of Sound, and that's in the works. So you can subscribe to my newsletter on my website, and you'll definitely find out when that book is released. And I'm also an app creator, so if you play guitar, there's an app called Chord Atlas available for iPhone, just by searching that name, Chord Atlas. And I produce music, so some people come to me wanting to record songs or have instruments added to the music that they make, and I also offer that service. Pretty much if it has to do with sound and music, I do it. So uh, I teach guitar, voice, composition, music theory, and sound healing, and I've started to offer 20-hour trainings in this process. The next one will be taking place in Boston at the end of August. So if you're going to be around in that area, it will also be available via Zoom. But if you're in the area of the Boston area and you can attend in person, it's highly recommended. So registration for that is also available through my website under the events tab. And yeah, if you have anything you'd like to discuss with me, whether bringing me to your community or finding out more about what I do, then you can reach out through those avenues. Wonderful. And let's get the spelling of your name since this is just uh, everybody's just hearing this. Somebody who wants to find you, let's make sure that we have the spelling. Yes, for your Adrian. Adrian is A D R I A N. And D Mateo is D I M A T T E O dot com or at Adrian DiMatteo on the various social media platforms. Wonderful. Adrian DiMatteo, thank you so much for being on the podcast today and sharing your, your teachings, your knowledge, your wisdom, and a little bit of your music. And hopefully our listeners will be inspired to find more. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And, and as we close, I, I would just offer that so much of this work is really about becoming a radiator and a transmitter of these vibrations yourself. The instruments are incidental, whether I use a flute or a shaker or a drum or a guitar, whether I sing or chant or sit in silence. It's really about accessing these states of consciousness within yourself that are very profound. And when you become that stable and that peaceful in your resonance, then it will affect those around you, whether you say a word or not. So this is an encouragement to everyone to connect however you can with the real meaning of healing sound. Beautiful. Thank you, Adrian, and thank you everyone for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast episode. Before you go, I wanted to remind you of free healing resources available on my website, www.bobvetter.com. 
This has been Healing and Spirituality in World Cultures with Robert Vetter. Thanks for listening. Please rate, subscribe, and share with everyone you know who might benefit from these messages. Until next time, remember, be kind and loving to yourself and others. Together, we can heal ourselves and help build a better world.